Luke chapter 15, we are finally back in Luke. We took a little bit of a detour, as I usually do at the end of a chapter. I preached a couple messages. Mark preached, I preached a couple more. Uh, and we are returning to the Gospel of Luke. And 15 is an interesting chapter in that it's compiled by three parables. So I was looking through some of the uh, other chapters I've preached through. Uh, Luke chapter 9 was 18 sermons. Luke chapter 11 was 19 sermons. I think Luke chapter 15 is only going to be three. Maybe four. So, long chapters in Luke, but because the, the form of these the form of this chapter, which is parable, I think we're going to do it in just a few. Let me pray, and then we will get started. Lord, what a great privilege. What a great honor that we have to come together today to hear the Word of God. That we get to interact with something that You have given to Your church throughout the ages, Lord, throughout church history, for our edification, for Your glorification, so that we might better grasp what You are like, so that we might better walk with You by faith, and so that we could glorify You in this life. I pray this message be an encouragement to the body of Christ. I pray that those who are gathered here, if any are carrying burdens, if any are just discouraged or frustrated with life, that there would be a lifting of that burden today. That as, as we open up the Word, as You help us to focus on the things that are written here, Lord, that it would just give us joy. If anyone came in here today, Lord, that had joy, that has joy, may their joy be multiplied as we look at this text. Thank You, Lord, that You are involved in all of the details of our lives. Thank You, Lord, that You are involved in all of the details of the nations. Thank You, Lord, that You are sovereign, that You are orchestrating all events, whether they are on the microscopic level or macroscopic level or within the universe itself, that everything is moving to Your intended end and that You will be glorified by all of it. Help us to believe You and to walk with You. We pray for our children as they receive the Word of God. May You stir their hearts and affections. May they come in to encounter the living God today as they are being taught. May You bless their teachers. And may You give them hearts to believe. I pray, God, now as we come to this text that we would observe great and wonderful things that You have put here for our instruction. Heavenly Father, Thank You that we can call You Father. Thank You that You have redeemed us through Your Son and that You have sealed us by Your Spirit that we may live in this world and yet have heaven in our hearts. Please now we pray, do what You've done many times before. Show us the way. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I boasted about how we were going to cover this chapter in only three or four sermons, but the sermon today is only going to be verses 1 and 2. However, I am going to read verses 1 through 24 so we could take sort of a flyby and see most of this chapter. So sit, get comfortable, relax, and let us read the Scriptures together. Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Him. 
that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property. Sorry, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. In recent years, a number of books have come out by people claiming to have died, gone to heaven, and come back from the dead to tell their story. Maybe you've heard of some of these books. Some of the more notable titles include Heaven is for Real, 90 Minutes in Heaven, and the boy who went to heaven. And all of these books involve a similar series of events. There's a tragedy of some sort, like an accident, 
the person dies, they take a supernatural trip through the afterlife, only to be resuscitated to live again. And they go on and talk about the sights and the sounds and the smells of heaven and go into great detail about what they had seen and experienced. And books like these are hugely popular, some of them bestsellers, and even a few of them made into motion pictures. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul had an experience like this, where he was allowed to see what no man has seen before, and when he returned to his body, the Scripture tells us he was forbidden to speak about the things which he saw. You can read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So Paul takes a trip to heaven. He doesn't even know if he was in the body, out of the body. It was a supernatural experience. And God says, you are not to speak of these things. Now, if Paul is not allowed to speak of these things, that leads me to believe that God would probably not allow others to speak about them and certainly not give them million-dollar book deals. But they claim to have gone to heaven and they write books of their experience. But really, the Bible gives us little information about what heaven is like. And when heaven is described, you may have noticed it's cloaked in mysterious and symbolic language. Ezekiel has a vision into heaven. John the Apostle has a vision into heaven in the book of Revelation. And you read these things and you're trying to understand what on earth they are talking about. And you have to walk away realizing that the authors are trying to describe the indescribable. So we do not have a clear picture of heaven given to us in Scripture. But there is one thing that's clear about heaven. There is one thing that's not shrouded in mystery. And that is that heaven is a place of unspeakable joy. Heaven is a place of unspeakable joy. Now, joy is a wonderful emotion, is it not? Joy is something we do not encounter enough of in this life. I was trying to describe what joy is this week, and I was thinking it's a feeling of happiness and well-being and contentment, and even excitement. Joy is that thrilling, exciting, extraordinary feeling, and that is going to be what dominates more than anything else the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is a place of joy. And it's no surprise then that the world portrays heaven as quite the opposite. Heaven is depicted in our culture as being a place of boredom. A place where you just float on a cloud by yourself, playing a harp and contemplating your existence. It's like the Far Side cartoon where a man is doing just that and the little thought bubble has him saying to himself, I should have brought a magazine. With a heaven like that, it's no wonder that science fiction writer Isaac Asimov once said, for whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. But rather than boredom, the Bible describes heaven as a place of unspeakable joy because those who are in heaven are in the presence of a God of unspeakable joy. The God of the Bible is a God of joy. You are surely familiar with God's anger if you've read the Bible. You've read of the global flood. You've read of Sodom and Gomorrah. You've read of the ten plagues on Egypt. You've read of the conquering of the Canaanites. So you're familiar with God's anger. But I want to ask you, are you equally familiar with God's joy? In Luke chapter 15, Jesus teaches us about the joy of heaven 
in the form of three parables. He shows us what event on earth gives God delight and what causes the unseen divine realm to erupt in praise and celebration. What is it that causes such heavenly joy? Lost sinners being reconciled to God. The joy of heaven over sinners coming to Christ becomes the theme of this entire chapter. And Jesus describes this same theme through three stories. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. All three parables have the same structure. Something is lost. Something is sought. Something is found. And the response to the finding, the response to that reunion is celebration. They throw a party. If you have your Bible open, you can see this in the parable of the lost sheep in verse 6. It says, when the man comes home, notice what he does, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Similarly, in the parable of the lost coin, you can read it in verse 9. It says, And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin I had lost. In the parable of the lost son, when the son returns from squandering all of his father's resources and then comes to him in shame and desperation, we read in verse 22, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. All three, joy, all three parables are about heaven's joy over redeemed sinners. God's joy is expressed throughout this chapter when people who are lost in sin become reconciled and forgiven. Rather than smoldering in anger, waiting to crush sinners, delighting in their destruction, God loves the lost and even seeks the lost. And when the lost become found, God responds with resounding joy. Joy like a shepherd who found his lost sheep. Joy like a woman who found her lost coin. Joy like a father who found his lost son. Now the three stories Jesus gives in this chapter are presented to expose the great divide between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the Pharisees. Notice the first two verses, and we're going to camp here for the rest of this sermon. Verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. We know the Pharisees and the scribes from going through the Gospel of Luke. These are the religious leaders in Israel. These are to be Israel's shepherds. Meaning they were the ones who were supposed to go after the lost sheep. These were the ones who were to spend themselves on seeing people restored to God. These were to be the ones who reflected heaven's joy by reaching out to the reprobate, by enduring with the afflicted, by pursuing the marginalized. And these were to be the ones who celebrated when even one of them was restored to God. But instead, what developed among them was a religious arrogance the Pharisees and scribes became separatists who were proud at heart and saw lost people 
as worthless, disposable. These people were not the mission field in their eyes, they were the enemy. The Pharisees did not delight in the redemption of sinners, they delighted in the thought of their judgment. Now, why did they think this way? Well, the Pharisees and scribes had an incomplete picture of God. They got some things right. God hates sin. They got that part right. God is angry at the evil things that men devise. God is holy and has no fellowship with wickedness. And the Pharisees and scribes upheld and revered the holiness of God. And they looked upon these men and women in rebellion against God as practicing what God hates. And you know what? They were right. But what they missed altogether was the mercy of God. And that God is a God of redemption. And that God has provided a way for all people to be reconciled, even the worst of sinners. Even if someone has marched 5,000 miles away from God, heading in the opposite direction their entire life, it's only one step back to Him. Someone could have made shipwreck of their life. They could have ensnared themselves with many vices. They are far, far, far away from having peace with God. But geography in the kingdom of God is a little bit different. They don't have to march the 5,000 miles back to God. It's only one step back to God. One step. The idea that we have to straighten out our own course is a man-made doctrine called penance. Penance says first you pay back God and then He's going to receive you. But the goodness of the Gospel is that people, no matter what they have done, still have an opportunity to be restored, to be forgiven, to use the theme of the parables, to be found. We call that turning to God, that one step turning to God, repentance. But to the Pharisees, these people were so far away that there was no way back to God. So why waste your time with people who don't matter to God? That was their understanding. Now, I don't want to downplay the sins of the people who came to hear Jesus. Their sins were serious. Luke describes them for us in verse 1. The tax collectors and sinners. You see this often in the Gospels. The tax collectors and sinners. We know about tax collectors. We should by now. We've talked about them before. These were certain Jews who were working with the Roman government to tax the people of God. And it was a tax that many of the Jews thought was unlawful. In fact, they thought it was a sin to pay the, the tax because the tax was funding this Gentile Roman war machine that was oppressing the people of God. So it was very controversial in the first century. Should we be paying taxes to Caesar or not? In fact, you remember they tried to trap Jesus with that question. They were trying to trap him to get him to polarize one group or the other. That's how controversial this subject was. So you have this controversial subject of taxation, just the subject itself, but you have these Jews who are participating with the Romans to collect this tax. And add to this, the tax collectors were notorious for being criminal. With Rome at their back, they've got the Roman Empire's authority, and they can come to you and tax you as much as they want. And they can give what belongs to Rome back to Rome, and they can keep whatever excess for themselves. 
And so it was extortion. These were Jews extorting money from their fellow Jews, and they were a pariah in first century Israel. They were forbidden from participating in the temple, from participating in the synagogue, and really from participating in Jewish life in general. They were thought of as the most base and wicked of sinners. Worse than Gentiles, their testimony was not even allowed in Jewish court. And being in the presence of a tax collector could endanger you of becoming ceremonially unclean. They were perceived as liars, robbers, and betrayers of their own people. And, of course, they were considered beyond redemption. And that's the point. These aren't redeemable people. God was not interested in these people, and so the Pharisees and scribes were not interested in them either. The other group Luke describes for us are just called sinners. Now, this is a very broad category that could include obvious outward sins like drunkards and prostitutes and things like that. Or it could even include non-practicing Jews who did not comply with all of the rules of the Pharisees. Very broad category. Kind of a catch-all term in the Gospels to include everyone whom the religious class considered outside of the kingdom of God. And their being outside was communicated to them often by the attitude of the scribes and Pharisees. And because these religious leaders represented God to the people, whatever the Pharisees' attitude was toward them would be God's attitude towards them. I mean, that's what they thought. Here were Israel's holy men, Israel's spiritual leaders, and their disdain for them would be God's disdain for them. And because the Pharisees misunderstood true holiness and God's desire to redeem, they believed that holiness meant a separation from anyone who was also not pursuing a life of holiness. Not also pursuing a life of holiness. So rather than reaching out to people who had gone in the wrong direction, they avoided them entirely. And yet, who do they find not avoiding these people? Who do they find welcoming such God-dishonoring men and women? One of the reasons Jesus was so hated by the religious class was because He would not only speak with these people, something they were unwilling to do, but he would also share in the most culturally acknowledged expression of solidarity. He would eat with them. And that was more than they could handle. They would not be caught dead with these people. And here is this so-called rabbi spending time with them as if they mattered to God. As if they had some value. Now, I love verse 1. It's fascinating to me. I've been thinking about verse 1 for weeks and weeks and weeks. And what's so fascinating to me is that these people are interested in Jesus. Look what it says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Him. Isn't that fascinating? It's fascinating because man by nature is a runner. Ever since the sin in the Garden of Eden, mankind has been running and hiding from God. That's who man is by nature. How are men running and hiding from God? I think one of two ways. By ignoring God altogether and living as if He didn't exist, 
or more commonly by creating a God after his own image, after our own image, and living as if that is the God of creation. That's the most common one. My mother had knee replacement surgery the same day I had shoulder surgery. It just sort of worked out that way. She is recovering at the Camarillo Care Center, and I went to visit her yesterday and spend some time with her. And uh, it was lunchtime, and we were sitting at a, a table with a man named Rich who was there visiting his sister. Rich was 86 years old, great shape really into health, really into uh, eating right. His sister is in her 90s. He was the youngest of seven children. And uh, we were chit-chatting about where we were from and just small talk like that. And he said something about heaven. I think he said, I mean, these are old folks, and he's the youngest of seven, so I think he mentioned something about the rest of them being in heaven. And uh, I said, my vocation is to tell people how to get to heaven. And his eyes lit up and he thought that was really exciting. And he started telling me about his version of God in heaven. And he's talking about reincarnation. And he's talking about five years of psychedelic therapy that he did, which is where you take LSD and mushrooms and ecstasy and you go out in the woods or whatever and you are with a community of people and you take these drugs and you have these experiences. And it became very obvious to me that his concept of God and heaven had nothing to do with what has been revealed. And he talked about people who had near-death experiences and he's read a bunch of those books and he was fascinated with the subject. And he's telling me about what they experienced and what they saw on the other side and how they came back to life. He talked about New Age mysticism and psychology and Scientology and all of this big mess of jumbled ideas all formulated that he put together himself for his idea of what God is like and what heaven is like. And he was cool with Jesus as long as Jesus was saying the things that he, uh, he believed. So I would say, well, you know, Jesus didn't say we must be born again and again and again and again, but that we are to die and face judgment. Yeah, I don't believe in a God of judgment. And I said, Rich, hearing you talk about all these different things, it sounds to me like you have created a God in your own mind that you are comfortable with, and when you say God, that's what you're talking about. But that is not the God that's been revealed. Now, I've talked to many people like Rich before who say, yes, well, I think God is like this. Well, well, Jesus said this, but I think God is like this. And so they build a God and they hide from the true God behind that God that they have built. And when they use the word God, they're thinking of the one that they created. The Bible calls that idolatry. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that none seek after God. And yet, what do we see in verse 1 here? It says they all drew near to hear Him. Now, why would man, who is inclined by his very nature to run and hide from God, especially ones who are the most sinful in a deeply religious society such as this one in the first century, why would they be drawn to come and listen to Jesus? Why would men and women who are immersed in a sinful lifestyle take an interest in someone who is so unmistakably holy? And I think the answer is, they took an interest in Jesus because Jesus took an interest in them. Jesus 
Jesus was nothing like the Pharisees. They separated themselves from sinners. They would not even walk on the same side of the street as these people. And Jesus spoke with them. And He touched them. And He ate with them. And He got to learn about their lives and learn about their families and have conversation with them. And He told them that the kingdom of heaven was available to them. They'd never heard anything like that before. These were people who probably most of their life believed that that was a door that they had shut years ago and by their choices and by their lifestyle, there was no going back. But Jesus comes along and He welcomes them. And He says to the crowds that He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He says if anyone comes to Him, He will never turn them away. He said the kingdom of heaven belongs to people like this. Not to the obsessively religious. Not to the perfect who are doing all the things of the law so perfectly. But to the poor in spirit. Meaning those who come to God and say, I've got nothing. i got nothing to give you. All those people, all those sinners, the tax collectors, they were in that category. They had nothing to offer God. And they're coming and they're gathering to hear Him. Now, we tend to read our Bibles with chapter breaks, and I even tend to preach according to chapter breaks, but there was no chapter break in the original. So look at the last verse in chapter 14 at the very end. What do you see in 14.35? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's the last thing Jesus said in the previous chapter after teaching some hard, hard things. In the very next verse, 15 verse 1, we see who has ears to hear. Not the religious leaders in Israel, but these reprobates of Israel. These unclean, forsaken sons of Abraham. They have ears to hear what Jesus is saying and the religious class doesn't. And the whole scene is disgusting to the Pharisees. This is scandalous to them. In fact, notice how they imply guilt because of what he's doing. Look at verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, we don't think eating a meal with someone is that big of a deal, but you've got to remember this is a culture where eating a meal with someone is the equivalent of saying, this one is my friend. This one is my friend. And anyone who would consider themselves friends with these people in the mind of the religious would be just as guilty as they are. These are disgusting people, and if you're going to hang out with them, you're disgusting too. That's, that's their attitude. And so their statement here is an indictment against Jesus. These were men who kept meticulous Sabbath laws. These were men who were so afraid not to swallow anything unclean that they would strain their water lest they accidentally swallow a gnat. These were men who not only tithed of their income, but they tithed of everything all the way down to their spice rack. These were men who so diligently pursued conformity to the traditions that they would avoid sinners and lepers and Gentiles and anyone who could not maintain their strict religious standards. But, were they like God in their attitude and actions? 
were they a representation of the kingdom of heaven? Now, we're going to find out as we go through this chapter that while heaven is rejoicing at sinners coming to Jesus, their response looks completely different. Verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They grumbled. You know what grumbling is? Grumbling is just like complaining but to yourself, right? Look at this guy. Disgusting. Who is this? Who does he think he is? Why would he sit there with them? It's just this... They hated what they saw, and their response to what they saw caused them to grumble. Now, so picture this. The entire chapter is going to be about heaven's joy at the reconciliation of sinners and the Pharisees' attitude to the reconciliation of sinners is grumbling, not joy. So this is a good time to ask a question. What is your attitude toward the lost? What is the tilt of your heart when you see someone lost in the LGBTAQI plus lifestyle? What is the tilt of your heart when you meet someone who is of the opposite political spectrum as you And what they believe should happen in this country is destroying this country as far as you're concerned. What is the tilt of your heart when you encounter people who are nothing like you are or who practice things that God hates? Is your first inclination to pray for them? Or does the tilt of your heart say, Man, Judgment Day can't come soon enough. What do you think of people being joined to God and added to His church who look nothing like you? Neck tattoos and piercings and former sexual predators and former gang members people who spent time in prison for serious crimes, and now they want to share a pew with you? Do you celebrate along with heaven? Or do you grumble at their presence? Now, there is a good and righteous anger, I think, toward people who so flagrantly and blatantly oppose God and defy God. But let's not be deceived, beloved. We are called to be salt and light in this life. And so our salt in this world is by praying. We are a preservative. We are interceding for people. Our light is sharing the truth of the Gospel with such people. And it is not delighting in their condemnation. What is the tilt of your heart? Because the contrast between Jesus and the religious people here should cause us to ask that question since there is a danger among religious folk like us that we are going to become like the Pharisees. That we are going to be self-righteous And we become comfortable only within our closely knit religious community and we separate from those outside our community, especially those who look different from us, especially those who have different sins than we do or have a past that we don't have. And so the contrast is so clear in this text, we want to make sure that we're rejoicing along with heaven 
and not murmuring along with those who are never going to see heaven. Verse 2, again, you can just sense their disdain for Jesus. This man receives sinners and eats with them. That's their accusation. That is what they find deplorable. That is the greatest charge that they have against Him. The only thing their warped minds can accuse Him of is that this man receives sinners and eats with them. They're probably thinking of all the holy things that they do, because that's what self-righteous people do. And so they're at the temple and the Sabbath with tithing and washing and separating with their long prayers and their long robes, and they've got all their holy ordinances and their religious respectability, and their response to the one who comes to the lost is, but this man, this man, you can hear the disgust in their voice. This is meant to be a slander. This is meant to be a slander against him. Now they do not experience heaven's joy. And they are not like the angels in heaven who celebrate over one sinner who repents. And they are not like the God of creation who celebrates when a tax collector or drunkard, or prostitute comes to Christ. In fact, they expose themselves here as not belonging to heaven. Because they do not love the things that God loves, nor do they love the people that God loves. They would not have celebrated the conversion of Matthew, the healing of the demoniac, the restoration of sight to the man born blind. They are not cheering along with the angels at the conversion of Zacchaeus. They are grumbling and murmuring and they are even proud of the fact that Jesus is nothing like they are. And surely heaven celebrates that too. The contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees could not be greater. What causes them to grumble is what causes heaven to rejoice. As we unfold this chapter, we're going to see of more of God's attitude towards sinners, more of heaven's joy, but I will conclude with two points of application. Point number one, as I consider this text. You and I are to imitate Christ in this work. You and I are to imitate Christ in this work. The most derogatory charge they could bring against Him was, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Could someone bring a charge like that against you? Could you be slandered by those of a religious spirit who has the habit of welcoming people who are lost in their sin? Could you be accused of doing something like engaging and embracing someone who is notoriously sinful? Because when you are doing that kind of work, you are doing the work of God in the world. God is a seeker of that which is lost and he does his seeking, or he has done his seeking through Jesus and continues the ministry of Jesus through the church, which means you. This is the work of God in the world through you, seeking and saving 
that which is lost. Just like the seeking shepherd, just like the seeking woman, and just like the seeking father, you now represent the seeking and rejoicing God. He uses you. Secondly, do you think of God as having joy over you? Do you think of God as having joy over you? God's joy over lost sinners is God's joy over you. If you have come to Christ, whether your sins were great or small, God rejoiced at your salvation, which means that presently He rejoices over you. Do you think of God as having joy concerning you? Do you think when you stand before Him someday, when you finally see Him face to face, it's going to be a celebration? It's going to be the culmination of this great reunion that He has redeemed you and that you have walked with Him by faith and you run to Him? Or are you a little bit afraid of that day? Do you picture God rejoicing at your entrance into the kingdom or do you think that He somehow welcomes you reluctantly? Or out of a sense of obligation somehow. As if it was some kind of technicality that you got let in. This passage helps us to understand the joy of God in the redemption of sinners which tells us that God has joy over us because of the work of Christ. You know God's wrath in the Bible, but do you know His joy? We will look at some more next time. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, May we truly believe that in Christ we have your good pleasure. That just as you said about Jesus, with him I am well pleased, so you say about those who are joined to him by faith. Lord, may we think upon your joy this week. May we we remember what It costs you to reconcile us to yourself. And may that produce joy in us. And Lord, may you give us opportunity to be your hands and feet in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.